Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Friday morning show for you, and we start right now with Jugmeet Singh, the MP for Burnaby South. He is the leader of the federal NDP in the House of Commons, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jugmeet Singh, thanks for coming on. Hey, my honor, my pleasure. Okay, thanks for being here. Lots to talk about. Let's start with the sexual misconduct scandal that's rocking the Canadian military, and this goes all the way to the very top. Uh, retired General Jonathan Vance, the former chief of the defense staff, under investigation for sexual misconduct allegations. Uh, earlier this week on the show, I spoke to Gary Walborn, who is the former ombudsperson for the Canadian military, and he repeated that he very clearly uh, told the defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, back in 2018, that he had received a complaint of sexual misconduct against this this guy. Let me play a clip here for you of Sajjan uh, under sure. questioning on, on this from uh, Mercedes Mercedes Stevenson from Global News on this point. It, we did not know the details. It was only uh, did not know the details of the, of the complaint that I stated in uh, in my testimony. Okay, so he says he doesn't know the details, but you got the ombudsperson for the military saying, "Look, I clearly told the guy that this was a sexual misconduct allegation." But your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are this is not anything new. Uh, this whole problem in the Canadian Armed Forces goes way back. And at the end of the day, absolutely, the defense minister knew. I believe the prime minister knew. But the bigger problem is that they're not acting on it. And in 2015, yeah. there was a justice of the Supreme Court who did a report called the Deschamps Report. And she said really clearly there's a culture in the military that's hostile to women. And the, her number one recommendation was there needs to be an independent process outside of the chain of command for women to bring foreign complaints. There was nearly 800, over 800 complaints over five years, which translates to over three complaints of sexual assault or harassment in the Canadian Armed Forces a week. Over three yeah. allegations a week. This is serious. And Trudeau and, and the defense minister, neither of them have put in place that recommendation. They've had it for six years. And now they want to do another report. So really the thing that is most insulting to me is they're not putting in place the key recommendation so that women can come forward when there is these type of uh, allegations. Yeah, that earlier investigation was done six years ago and it produced right. a bombshell report that like shocked right. Canadians at the time. And you're right, there have been hundreds and hundreds of, of these type of complaints. Let me play another clip here for you from the minister, Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, speaking to Mercedes Stevenson. On that very point, why are you doing a do-over here with another judicial review? And here's what he said. If we're going to look at not just from the reporting side, we're going to be looking at accountability and, and the authorities piece as well. So they're potentially out of this will be organizational changes. But we want to move, work very quickly on this as well. And that's what the role that uh, Lieutenant General Carrion will also be doing is building that foundation to support the work that Madame Arbor will be doing. Okay, does he want to get on with this quickly, as he says there in that clip, or is this just kind of kicking this thing down the road and just hope it goes away, especially with an election maybe looming? 100% just kicking it down the road. Listen to that yeah. response. That's not the response of someone who wants to get stuff done. That is looking for an excuse. Like, let's be clear. Justice Arbour is phenomenal. She's an amazing, amazing individual who's done great work, has a great track record. But it's not about the equality of Justice Arbour. It's the fact that what confidence do Canadians have when there is just, it's not like it was 20 or 30 years ago. Six years ago, another justice of the Supreme Court did a report. And for six years, Justin Trudeau did nothing with it. Like, what, what confidence do we have that hiring another justice of the Supreme Court to do another report isn't also going to be ignored for another six years? Like, instead of doing another report, wouldn't it make sense to actually do the actions recommended by the first one? If they yeah. did it, they put it in place, and it didn't work, they said, oh, we tried, and it didn't work. Now we need to do another report. That would make some sense, at least. They yeah. literally haven't done the recommendation, the number one recommendation from the 2015 report, and now they're saying we're going to do another report. This is, uh, this is, uh, I, I think this is a government that still remains in pre-election mode here, and, and, I, and I think that by ordering another in, require, uh, inquiry like this, it just kicks it down the road, like you said, for a year or, or maybe longer, maybe beyond the timing of another election. This is a minority parliament. You've got some leverage over the government, I presume. Like, is there anything that you, have you personally told Trudeau that you want more aggressive action on this? Yeah, multiple times. And here's the thing. They want to go to an election. They actually want to go to an election. So there's not leverage in saying, we'll pull the plug when, when the other folks want to go to an election. Oh, yeah. So what, what we're trying to do here is say, 
listen, if you want to do something, we're, we're putting this to Canadians because we want to point out the hypocrisy here. We got on one hand the conservatives that are in a fight about who's worse, uh, and you know, let me help them. If they're looking for who's worse, they both have failed women. You know, Aaron O'Toole was was in cabinet when when Vance was hired in the first place. So yeah, absolutely, the conservatives have sure. failed women. The liberals have failed women. And and the requirement here is not to try to find out who's worse. Nor is the goal here to 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 do another inquiry. The goal, in my mind, is to make it safer for women. That should be the goal. Let me and it not- should be to make it easier for women to come forward with complaints and make sure if you bring a complaint up and it makes it to the highest office of the land, that something gets done about it. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Let me ask you about another topic, and that is uh, Bill C-10 and the controversy over that. This is a government bill that would expand the Broadcast Act to cover CRTC regulation of big streaming services like Netflix, require them to meet Canadian content rules, that kind of thing, which, you know, a lot of people would say is a good idea, but... Uh, a lot of people saying it's it's government overreach. They want to censor social media content. They want to censor people's uploads to uh, Twitter, Facebook. Let me play this clip for you. Pierre Poliev, the conservative MP here on this point. The bill's true powers would be to censor and control what Canadians see, read, watch, and now even post online. Okay, the NDP supports this bill, right? Why do you support this bill? So, first off, this is just a colossal, embarrassing failure of the Liberals. The goal of the bill was something pretty simple, that right now, if you're a Canadian broadcaster, you got to follow a bunch of rules. If you're a foreign broadcaster, you don't. You get exempt. And that is offensive. Why would we set up a scenario where foreign broadcasters have advantages over our local ones? That's an absurd thing. And why would we set up rules that disadvantage Canadian artists and, and content creators. That's the current laws. So we want to fix that. Yeah, I absolutely support fixing that. But I don't support the Liberals' debacle. Like, instead of focusing on, on exactly what should happen, which is a very obvious thing, we shouldn't have any laws in Canada that give foreign companies advantages over our local domestic companies, ever. That should never be the case. That is what's going on right now. And I absolutely support fixing that. Uh, but there are some legitimate concerns being raised if, because the Liberals have blundered on this. And so what we're calling for is a charter analysis to make sure there's absolutely no way that this is going to impact our social media, um, content creation, people's dissent if they want to voice it, if they want to raise anything. You know me. I'm someone very active on social media. I've got a, I got a big following. I use social media all the time. I think it's vital to make sure that people are able to express themselves freely. So that's what we've said. Let's put a pause on this. The liberals have, have just messed up something that was so straightforward. They've messed it up so much. Let's make sure there's a charter analysis to get to the truth. Will this have any impact? Because I don't want to have any impact on people's rights so to be able to post what they want. So you're pulling your support for this bill then? Uh, what we said is we want to do a charter analysis. Uh, because the principle I absolutely support. I don't want foreign companies to have exemptions over, over domestic companies, Canadian companies. I want Canadian companies to have a fair shot of, of producing content. So there's no way I would ever support foreign companies having an advantage over local companies. Never. That's wrong. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, there's some problems in this bill now, and so I, I want to make sure there's a charter analysis that sets it clear what will this bill do and will it in any way impact Canadians' freedoms. Okay, one more point for you, and this is my first opportunity to talk to you since the federal budget came down, and we've got record mm-hmm. debt. We got record debts. We got the, the the long-term debt of the country has gone through the stratosphere over a trillion dollars. The debt is unbelievable. Uh, yet it seems like you, your point of view on it is spend even more. So you're calling for universal dental care, student debt forgiveness, uh, universal pharma, pharma care. Uh, when you're in opposition, you got no chance to be prime minister. Is, is it just easy to kind of just like spitball this kind of stuff and say we should just spend every, spend as much money as possible? Because you'll never have to be in a position where you're required to balance a budget or deal with the fallout. Like, I'm just well, like, where, where is the realism in, in these, yeah, yeah, or yeah. sustainability in what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we've got to look at choices. So, so governments in the past have made choices. So uh, conservative governments made a choice and liberal governments have made a choice not to tax Netflix, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. That is billions and billions of dollars that they're throwing down the drain. So they chose to burn those billions of dollars just to let them go away and let companies come to Canada, make money off the backs of Canadians, and pay no taxes. That was their choice. They chose to allow tax loopholes and tax havens where companies make money off the backs of Canadians, take that money and hide it in a bank in the Caribbean, and don't pay taxes here. 
That's a choice, again, to burn billion, billions of dollars. Not millions, it's billions of dollars they choose to burn every year. They say, yeah, we're just going to burn these billions of dollars. We wouldn't make those choices. We would close those tax loopholes. We would say, if you're a foreign company making money off the backs of Canadians, you better pay taxes here in Canada then. So we would make different choices. And so instead of burning billions of dollars on letting foreign companies make money off the backs of Canadians, we would say, no, we're going to make sure they pay their fair share, and we're going to invest that in Canadians. The beginning of the Canadian healthcare system, when it was envisioned, it was always envisioned in 1960 when the commission happened, it was always envisioned to include medication coverage and dental care. They said that why would we exclude our teeth? It makes no sense. Oral health is directly connected to your overall health. Yeah. There's no distinction. If, if you've got a problem with your oral health, you know for sure you're going to have a problem with your overall health. So why would it be arbitrarily left out? In the 60s, this is like you know, decades ago, they decided absolutely it should be included. And if we've got a universal healthcare system and people can't afford the medication, well, it's a pretty bad system. People were told, you know, you've got to take this insulin, but you can't take it. You're going to get sick and end up in the hospital anyways. Why would we have a system that doesn't make sense? So it was always envisioned. The plan was always, from the 60s, when it was first thought of, the plan was always to have dental care and medication. We just want to finish the job. But we would do things differently. Absolutely. We'd make different choices. And we wouldn't let billions of dollars go down the drain towards uh, subsidizing foreign companies like liberals and conservatives have done. We would spend that money on people. Jagmeet Singh, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, All right, welcome back. Let's talk about vaccine passports now as we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. Should you now be required to show proof of vaccinations in order to attend mass gathering events? Check out what they're doing in Israel, where they brought in what they call a vaccine green pass to attend restaurants, concerts, nightclubs, sporting events. Basically a barcode that you would carry with you and must be scanned to get inside. What about here in Canada? Well, the Trudeau government considering a vaccine passport for international travel, but the government seems reluctant to enforce mandatory vaccines domestically inside our own borders. Should we do that? What about university and college campuses? Look what's happening in the United States, where 100 U.S. colleges will now require vaccinations to attend in-person classes this fall. Should we be doing the same thing in Canada? Have a listen to this now. Here's a Washington governor, our next-door neighbor here in Washington State, the governor there, Jay Inslee. Here's an incentive. You'll be able to go to college if you become vaccinated. Okay, so it looks like they're looking at it in Washington State, but Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked about this the other day. She didn't seem too keen on it. Here's what she said. My recommendation will not be to make it mandatory. Certainly we are looking at making sure it's available to people, particularly students who come from other countries. Okay, should vaccines be mandatory on Canadian college and university campuses? Let's discuss now with my guest, Amir Adaran. He is a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Adaran, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. What do you think about what they're doing in the United States with a lot of colleges here moving in this direction of a mandatory vaccine uh, requirement? Do you think it's a good thing, and should Canada be doing the same thing? Well, it seems they're smarter than us. Uh, Yes, of course, Canada should be doing the same thing. I mean, any campus or high school is a site of disease spread. In fact, potentially super spreading in places like that. And to not insist on vaccination in those settings is going to bring you a fourth wave. Guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. And so the Americans, uh, who have been much more clever on vaccination, um, you know, they're getting vaccinated as Canadians are sitting around waiting. The Americans have decided that their university and college campuses will require vaccines to attend. We should do the same thing. Okay, it's interesting to look what's going on south of the border, and it appears that uh, private colleges in the United States seem to be making up most of the schools with these vaccine mandates, but there are some public universities also getting on board. Do you see it as a trend? Is it going to get bigger in the States, do you think? Well, I think it's plenty big already. I I mean, I don't exactly agree with that difference of public versus private. The University of California... Um, is a public system. It's the biggest and best public university system in North America, probably the best in the world. And they are requiring vaccination at 
you know, UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC San Diego, UC Davis. You've heard of all these universities. They're all requiring it. So is the California State University system. Uh, you know, California is a state that has an equal population as, as all of Canada put together. Uh, it, the fact that the Californians are going this way at their public institutions makes it incredibly um, lame that in Canada we're not doing the same. It's, it's frankly, some of the stupidest public health thinking I've ever come across. And I'm very sorry to hear Bonnie Henry, who I once admired, past tense, by the way, um, making the case that there shouldn't be vaccination at colleges and universities. Okay, what about the, um, are, are there any sort of constitutional legal barriers to something like this, uh, the freedom uh, to, to move around the country, to freedom to make choices in the country without being being vaccinated? Like, I imagine if we did go in this direction in Canada, it would quickly be challenged and be put in front of a judge. Yeah, it would. Yeah. And whoever the challenger is would lose. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't live in fear of that challenge because it's, it's going to happen. Take a look, though, at Ontario. You know, in Ontario, um, if you want your child in public school, you'd best produce vaccination records. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you don't produce those vaccination records and you don't have one of a small handful of recognized exemptions, your kid isn't going to school. Now, that's the way it's worked for childhood vaccinations in Ontario for some years. Right. I don't see a revolution in the streets. Everyone accepts that. Why should it be different now for COVID when we have that rule already for measles, for rubella, for diphtheria? I mean, it just makes yeah. no sense. Speaking to Professor Amir Adaran, University of Ottawa, about mandatory vaccines on college and university campuses in Canada. So you mentioned that there's a small handful of exemptions in the public school system as it operates in Ontario for mandatory vaccines. Like, what are some of the exemptions? You can obtain an exemption uh, on religious grounds. Very few yeah. people do. Yeah. You know, and, and those, those few exceptions are not so many as to thwart the effectiveness of the system. Um, if you end up, as I think you would, with something like 95% of college and university students being vaccinated and another 5% making use of an exception, that's, that's enough. You know, you're, you're going to have sufficient protection in the student body that you're not going to have large outbreaks. And that's but, the goal. Well, that would be herd immunity on campus. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah, effectively. Um, you know, and, and there's also a benefit here in, requiring it um, for university students, because look, attending university or college, it's not a right, it's a privilege, you know, and, and society is entitled to attach to that privilege certain conditions like get vaccinated so you're not threatening the health of the person sitting in class next to you. The benefit would be that for parents who may resist vaccination, Having their child put to that choice and the child probably saying, yes, I would like to go to college, I would like to attend class, gives the parents reasons to rethink their opposition as well. How far would so, you, how far would sorry, you take, ahead. yeah, how far would you take a system like that? Like if we, ex if we applied it to college and university campuses, what about other sort of mass, mass gathering events? Like what about going to a restaurant, concert, nightclub, sporting event, going to the movies, do you think it should mandatory vaccines should be required in those places too? Until such time as the pandemic is over? Yes, I really do think that's right. And you see, you see Israel doing this. You see New York State doing this now, right? New York State has introduced a vaccine passport. If you want to attend a large sporting event, you've got to prove it. You've got to prove you've been vaccinated. If you can't prove that, you're not going to see the football game. Um, you know, and, and it's pretty hard for people to say that New York State is some sort of tyrannical dictatorship. Of course it isn't. This is happening in, you know, a very economically significant state of our nearest ally. Yeah. We have to yeah. be prepared to accept it. I, I just don't have any patience for the childish belief that in the middle of a pandemic, 
people get to do what they want, including threaten the health of others. I think that's that's a selfish and ignorant approach. Is there any indication of there's any governments or public health officials in Canada that are, are making the call for this type of mandatory vaccine rule? Like we just played that clip from our own provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, saying she doesn't like this idea of mandatory vaccines on college and university campuses. Are any public health officers in Canada for calling for this or any provincial governments looking at it? To your knowledge? No, and and you know, hmm. this is this goes to show the absolute inferiority of Canadian public health that has not learned. We are now in a third wave of the pandemic in Canada that is bigger than the second wave and bigger than the first wave. What kind of country gets two practice runs in the first and second wave and does worse the third time? I mean, if this doesn't make you feel utterly ashamed to be Canadian, I don't know why. Because it is, it is clear that we've had a year, our officials, our governments have had a year, over a year, to learn how to manage COVID. And each wave that comes, they do worse than the last. So I, personally, I think people like Bonnie Henry have, have cashiered their credibility through the, the poor performance in the third wave. And public health is now simply too important a matter for people to trust the experts. They, they have to trust their own judgments about how safe they want the society to be. Yeah. Okay, there's going to be a huge fight over this if we go in this direction, of course. And like you mentioned, that likely end up in a court challenge. But I can already hear civil libertarian organizations maybe having concerns about this. You can already hear people saying, well, this is this would be government overreach. This is Big Brother stuff. This would be government acting like in a totalitarian regime, uh, telling people they've got to carry papers and show proof of vaccination. Like, what do you say to that general sort of freedom argument? Well, does the government require you to wear seatbelts? Yes. Do they require you to wear motorcycle helmets? Yes. Do they require your food to meet minimum nutritional standards? Yes. Do they require your medicines to be safe? Yes. Do they require smoke alarms? Yes. I could go on and on. The government, even in many places, requires you to mow your lawn. Now, mowing your lawn has nothing to do with public safety, of course. But if you can be required to mow your lawn and you put up with that, you tolerate that peacefully, why the devil would you resist something that exists as a restriction to protect human life? All right. I mean, if you have that sort of knee-jerk reaction against any government interference, you really aren't a very sophisticated thinker about what it takes to survive in society in the middle of a pandemic. All right, Professor Adirant, really appreciate your thoughts on it. You've given us lots to talk about and chew over. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the electric revolution in personal transportation now. Electric bikes, e-scooters, electric skateboards, electric one-wheelers. You see more and more of these personal electric vehicles on the street these days. Okay, tons of interest in these vehicles, and I've got questions here. How easy are they to ride? How much do they cost? Do you need insurance? You got to wear a helmet. And where exactly can you ride these things? The rules seem kind of fuzzy to me. All right, we got a great guest on this now for you, Bradley Spence. Bradley is the co-founder and owner of EV's Skate Shop. It's Vancouver's first exclusive personal electric vehicle store. Uh, check out their website, which I've been doing, evs.com. Bradley, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is very cool, the, the stuff that you sell in your store. So let's start talking about, about some of these ones now. Um, let's start with the uh, the electric scooters. Now, these are the stand-up scooters. I always remember uh, kids calling these the Razor scooter, but these are like electric electric ones or powered ones, right? That's right, yeah. I grew up yeah. on Razor scooters, and, and I love yeah. them. And now the technology has got even better. You can actually... Zip around with zero effort. <laughs> yeah, okay. So how fast do those go? Because I see a lot of these on the street now. Yeah, the ones we sell, the maximum speed goes up to 27, 30 kilometers an hour. There are a lot more performance wheels out there that are technically only meant for recreation use um, on private roads. But, of course, some people uh, don't follow those rules. <laughs> Where are you allowed to ride these things? Um, technically, you got to follow the same rules as bicycles. So you got to stay in bike lanes, stay off the sidewalk, 
Um, you're not allowed on roads that have a speed limit posted more than 50 kilometers an hour, and you got to wear a helmet. It's pretty much the rules, um, very similar to other cities that have legalized these as well. Right. And in British Columbia, I think there's some evolving kind of legislation or, or local rules on these, right? Because isn't there, isn't there a, a number of municipalities brought in a pilot program to allow them? Yeah, there is. So it's um, Vancouver, West Vancouver, North Vancouver, Vernon, and Kelowna. Um, they're the ones that have started the pilot program for three years. And technically, this is only electric kick scooters. Now, when I heard about this uh, a year ago, and I was kind of had a little bit of an in with the city councillors, I was had some knowledge going into it, which is part of the reason why I opened the store, knowing that they were about to be legalized. Um, originally, it was supposed to be for all wheels, and the city likes to call the one-wheel devices monowheels, and they were supposed to be included, and they decided to only legalize electric kick scooters at the start. And I think they're testing it out, seeing how the public reacts, and then they might slowly allow more di- more types of personal electric transportation. Okay, you sell a lot of other, like, real space-age-looking stuff here on your store. Um, what are these yeah. things called an e- an EUC? That's the one that looks like a, like almost like a unicycle. And I see people whipping around on these things. I'm like, wow, how does that work? Yeah, so the EUC is my personal favorite form of transportation. Um, it, it is like an electric unicycle, except you stand on foot pedals, and it's a lot easier to learn how to ride than a unicycle. Many people get turned off by the idea at first, but yeah. we offer free lessons every Sunday, and we, most people can learn how to ride on their own without holding on to anyone within the end of our lesson, which is about an hour long. Um, so it's not that difficult. They range in power, they range in speed, they range in size, um, but they're the most practical because you can bring them in stores with you, you can take them into a restaurant, put them underneath your, your table. It's by far the most versatile and easy way to get around the city. What does EUC stand for? What is that? It stands for electric unicycle. Electric and, uh, unicycle, we, okay. Yeah, we think EUC sounds cooler, and it's kind of in, in the whole thing, in the whole industry, everyone seems to have turned to calling them just EUCs. Oh, how do you stop the thing? Has it got brakes? Yeah, so that's the funny thing. We ride around, and sometimes people look at you, and they're like, holy, that guy's not going to stop. But yeah. they actually have really good brakes. They, they can stop almost as quickly as a, a bike or e-scooter. And um, there's different techniques you can do to stop. So you can kind of like sit down really hard and it'll break it really quickly. Or you can just lean back slowly to come to a slowly slow rolling stop. But they're super maneuverable. And part of the reason why we opened the store is to change the public perception on these things. They're not as dangerous as people think. I mean, they, they look pretty hairy to me. Like, I'm not sure I'd want to get on one of these. So, But you mentioned that at your store you offer like free lessons to people on how to ride these things. Yeah, so inside our store in Chinatown, we have railings set up, and people will start by just holding onto the railings. So I'll teach them some basics, and after about 20 minutes of learning inside the store, they all take an e-scooter to the park by Science World, Concord Pacific Park, and we actually teach them that open area. And at first, they're holding onto our arms, and then eventually they feel confident to let go, and they're next thing you know, they're riding around by themselves. So okay, okay. Uh, do you yeah. need in- do you need insurance? I mean, technically, yes, So, and you can't get insurance for them. So the electric unicycles are still a gray area. I haven't heard of any police giving tickets out for them yet, and, and I haven't heard of any tickets for any micromobility devices that have been given out since 2017. So I think um, there's change coming for these things, and it's only going to get better. Yeah, what did you call them? A micro what? Sorry? Micro Micromobility. Micromobility. Yeah, that's the term that's being used in a bunch of cities right now. Um, unfortunately, cities like Toronto, they just actually voted to ban electric kick scooters. Oh. So that city is um, not with, it, with the times yet, and it's unfortunate. I feel really bad for riders in Toronto as it's technically still illegal to ride electric kick scooters in that city. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, how much do these things cost? Like, how much do you got to spend to get into an, an e-scooter? Uh, our electric e-scooters start at eight ninety nine, and same with the EUCs. They start at eight ninety nine, and um, our e-scooters go up to fourteen hundred dollars, and our EUCs they go all the way up to forty five hundred dollars. I actually Whoa. rode all the way to Whistler on one of mine. It's uh, got super long range, and it's a really good cruiser. It was a lot of fun. What you you went from you went from Vancouver to Whistler on on an electric unicycle? Yeah, from Kitsilano all the way to Whistler. Yeah. On one charge? On uh, I charged up in Squamish, but I. Didn't need to. Uh, we were with a friend who had a smaller battery to UC, and we had to charge up for him. But I could have made it the whole way. With, uh, with you, weren't on, you weren't on the Sea to Sky Highway, were you? Yeah, we were on the shoulder, just like the cyclists do. Oh, my God. That's allowed? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of a gray area. So um, as long as I, I feel like if you're following the rules, the, the police aren't hassling you on these things. Um, yeah. 
I just, one thing we teach at the store is to be respectful, follow the road rules, follow the cyclist rules, don't ride aggressively, always wear gear. Um, it, never assume a car is going to see you when they're taking a right turn. And there's things we try to teach every single person that gets on one of these and buys one of these to make sure they're being safe. And yeah. it's just nice to know, in fact, I think uh, riding a bicycle is just as dangerous or more dangerous than riding any, something like an EUC. Okay, how about an electric skateboard? I know a guy who had one of these, and he loved it until he wiped out and got a brutal road rash from it. But uh, yeah, tell me, they're a tell me bit, about that. <laughs> they're a little bit more sketchy. The wheels are smaller. We do sell them here, but it's it's more of a, I feel like, a recreation thing. It's not as... It's not the most ideal way to commute. The smaller tires are not very good in the rain. Um, so there's a, many reasons why I wouldn't advise electric skateboard. But there all are is another brand of electric skateboard called One Wheel, and they got a big fat go kart tire in the middle with two foot pads on the end. You may have seen those around town as well. Um, because they have a big fat tire, they're a lot safer when you're going over bumps. And uh, if you hit a pothole, you can usually bend your knees enough to recover. Right, yeah. So the one wheel, I'm looking at your website right now, and yeah, it's got a one pretty large, pretty fat wheel right in the in the middle, and I guess you're balancing on it. It's kind of like a one wheeled skateboard, I guess. Yeah, and it's funny. I'm just looking outside my store right now. I just saw someone ride by on one just now. <laughs> yeah, they're, it's they're a lot of fun. It's what I started on, and it kind of bred my passion for these things. The self balancing technology is such an amazing thing, and it's become an actual practical way of transportation. And we're going to see a lot less cars on the roads. And I know a lot of people that have bought EUCs off of me that sold their car to buy an EUC because they don't want to drive anymore. Wow. Okay. Like, I've seen these one-wheelers, too. And I don't know, man. Like I've seen some guys just booking it down the high, down their streets on this, like, going really quickly. Like, how fast can you – what kind of – what's the top speed on these things? The top speed on a one-wheel is 30 kilometers an hour. And that's, like, yeah. the very top speed. You don't want to go too much faster than that. Otherwise, you can overpower it, and it can cut out from trying to – go faster than its limits but it has safety precautions it'll lift your nose up to tell you that you're going too fast to let you know you need to slow down how do you stop these things what you got brakes yeah you just lean back it's called regenerative braking so when you brake on them you actually will also um, charge your battery a little bit as well okay what about uh hoverboards you saw those hoverboard no those were uh, that was kind of the early days in the technology and that's kind of what started it but those things aren't very practical the range is really poor they're not very maneuverable they're not stable so i'm grateful for hoverboards because they kind of kick-started this whole revolution um i i believe that the eucs are the future of transportation just because of how the practicality of bringing it in you don't need to carry them because they they roll beside you and self-balance like a suitcase so you can actually yeah. do your grocery shopping with uh with it next to you so Okay, speaking of Bradley Spence, he's the owner of EV's Skate Shop in Vancouver. They sell personal electric vehicles, including electric e-scooters, electric unicycles, and one-wheelers. Um, you say this is the future of transportation. What kind of reaction do you get from motorists, people people riding traditional bikes? Do Do some people look at you guys and say, you guys are like a menace on the road, or are you... Or do people generally get along? Yeah, definitely. It's been an interesting uh, few years. I would say three years ago, two years ago, it was a lot worse. And I think the public is starting to see that there, there's actually benefit to them. Um, I would say uh, cars and cyclists don't like them at first. But I've actually I've had people chirp at me while I'm riding. And I'll stop and have like a, a nice conversation with them and explain, like, how is this any different than your, your e-bike? And once we have a conversation and... Um, usually I can turn people around and that's honestly the mission statement of our company is to change the public perception of personal transfer, uh, micro personal right. transportation. So. All right. Welcome back. Talking electra, personal electric vehicles with Bradley Spence from EV's skate shop. Let's go right to your phone calls here now and speak to Betty in Vancouver. Hi, Betty. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Listen, um, I'm a blind person and all electric vehicles, whether they're e-scooters or cars or whatever, are a real menace to me in the streets because they don't make any noise and they're very dangerous. Um, there are a lot of seniors that have low vision and I just think these things are a huge menace and a real problem. You don't have to have a driver's license. People don't have insurance. Um, it, they're very, very dangerous to okay, someone buddy. like me. Betty, thank you for calling. That's something I never even thought of, like a, someone who's blind and uh, maybe relies on their hearing, Bradley, to uh, hear someone coming. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and that's why um, we tell all our customers to stay on the streets, stay in bike lanes. Um, I haven't heard of any incidents of 
anyone hitting anybody. And I totally understand Betty's concerns, but um, it's been le- their scooters have been legalized in so many cities uh, in many countries, and they've actually been deemed safer than bicycles in many of these cities uh, with wow. studies. So as long as people are following the rules, it, they're going to be able to stay away from pedestrians. That being said, there's bad apples with everything. There's cyclists that scream through red lights, and there's cars that also do the same. So there's bad yeah. apples everywhere, but we're really trying to prevent that from happening. Okay, Jeff in Vancouver. Hey, Jeff. Good, uh, good morning, um, and to your guest. There are a lot of uh, these scooters that are being sold at Canadian Tire and even London Drugs nowadays, and uh, I've been interested in buying one. I didn't know about your store, but uh, these folks who are buying these other scooters, over the years or months, they're going to need maintenance. Is your, is your uh, guest going to be able to uh, offer maintenance to scooters that weren't bought in, uh, in his store? Bradley. Yeah, we actually have a tech. He's working right now in the back, and we've been repairing scooters all across the city that were purchased uh, overseas in China or purchased at uh, Costco and Canadian Tire. So we have a full-service okay. um, uh, maintenance shop in the back. Okay, Pat in Richmond. Hey, Pat. Hey, guys. Um, I just, the question is, uh, what happens on an uh, un- electric unicycle when you come to a stop? Can you actually stand there on the thing, or do you have to get off it? And my comment is similar to Betty's, which is I see a lot of these scooters on the sidewalks everywhere. And I, whenever I say something to somebody, um, they tell me in no certain terms, you know, what I can do. So I think education is going to be a big deal here, no? Okay, Bradley. Yeah, so uh, first for the first question, coming to a stop, it's similar to like a motorcycle. You just take one foot off and you keep the other yeah. foot on the, the pedal. Uh, one wheels are kind of nice, though, because the fat tire, you're able to actually balance just standing there, which is kind of nice. Um, and the other question in terms of, um, no, sorry. He said, he said, well, he says people, he sees people driving on the sidewalk and if you question them, he gets attitude. Oh yeah. And I feel that most of these uh, riders on the sidewalk are uh, Uber Eats and, uh, the food delivery (laughs) people. And we've been really trying to push that to get off the sidewalk. Bradley, Bradley, real quick. Where's your store? Real quick. Where are you located? 230 East Pender street. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Right, welcome back to the show. Let's check in now with Mike Laundry, Westside Pest Control, voted best pest control in Vancouver, westsidepestcontrol.com. He does it all. Rats, wasps, ants, pigeons, raccoons, squirrels, bats. Yes, even bats. I just saw that on his website. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. Uh, so, Mike, I always listen to your ads on CKNW, which I find very entertaining. So one of the ads that you got running now are about pigeons. What's going on with pigeons? I've never heard of a pigeon infestation. Well, they love to uh, they love to find any place to go where where uh, where people don't want them to be. And one of the most common areas is often on uh, on, on balconies, uh, so they can literally render your outdoor space completely unusable. Oh man, how do you deal with that? Uh, so there's lots of various ways to uh, to try and el- eliminate them. Usually, some kind of uh, physical deterrent is is required once they've imprinted uh, the location of uh, of your balcony. They're going to keep returning back. They actually recruit additional pigeons as well. So they'll <laughs> literally be at the park that afternoon saying, "Hey guys, guess what? There's a really cool place over here," and um, uh, it won't just be them. Um, expanding their family but actually inviting their friends uh, to come over as well okay what's going on with wasps are wasps uh, this is sort of the time time of year for wasps isn't it in the spring or no yeah as soon as the temperature yeah. starts to warm up the wasps definitely um definitely start to start to increase so wasps actually in a in a wasp nest the whole nest dies off in the in the fall and only the queen and any potential queens that she that she has produced over the summer will survive. They overwinter um, solitarily, and then in the in the spring, those queens try to uh, start establishing new nests of their own. So yeah, you'll you'll see probably a few big ones flying around right now. Those are potential queens trying to start their own nest. Okay, so if you got a wasp nest, what do you recommend? Um, try to get it as early as possible if there's still. Yeah kind of the size of a golf ball it's probably something that uh, you can uh, you can tackle on your on your own um, one of the uh, one of the one of the common types of wasps that people see 
our umbrella wasps, which are completely different from uh, from yellow jackets. Umbrella wasps are a lot less uh, in, intense. Their stings are not going to hurt as much. Their nests are open-faced. You can actually see the comb, and they don't get very big as opposed to the yellow jacket nests that left unchecked will get to the size of a basketball. Right. Okay, Mike, you're a very popular guest on the show, and I'm already getting emails from listeners. So a buddy of mine sent me a, a text message here. He lives in Kitsilano. He's got a lot of seagulls nesting on top of several apartment buildings in the neighborhood. He says they're very loud. They crap all over the place. They're crapping on decks and balconies in large volumes. Is there anything they can do? Or when you've got a nesting bird like that, are there restrictions on what you can do to move them? Yeah, unfortunately, seagulls are a federally restricted uh, and uh, protected birds. So oh. you actually need to get a, fe- a federal permit to to even just to relocate the nest to the next building or, or somewhere else. And the frustrating thing is the time it takes to get the federal permission to remove the nest is usually the time it takes for the birds to be uh, to become adults and start flying and uh, um, and essentially uh, at, at that point um, they're going to be gone. Oh, you still, Mike, you still there, man? Oh, sorry, sorry, think I lost you. Nope, I'm still here. Okay, yeah. I thought you were getting maybe getting dive bombed by a seagull there or something. <laughs> well, you do. Honestly, if I'm doing an inspection for a seagull infestation at this time of the year, I need a golf umbrella to survive it. <laughs> okay. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Laundry, Westside Pest Control, is my guest. As usual, tons of calls to him. Let's go right to it. Nikki in Vancouver. Hey, Nikki. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I sure. have a carpenter ant problem I'm hoping your guest can help me with. It started two years ago, the very first year I got a fellow in and he defogged um, certain areas and sprayed the perimeter. Uh, we thought that was taken care of and then last year they returned with a vengeance and now we're spread to several different areas of the house and we saw them inside oh. the house as well. So then he came back and in, um uh, defogged, um, and then he injected a tib- timber, I believe, a product into the house, all around the house. He went around and drilled holes into the um, perimeter and did that. So anyway, this year, all of the areas have been treated and, and the problem is gone, but there's just one area where they're still lingering of seeing them come back, and I'm wondering mm. what, can, what I can do on my own instead of having... <laughs> Is there anything I can do okay, Mike. to get rid of that? Mike Laundry. Hey, yeah, so uh, it sounds like the, the treatment that you had is actually very, very thorough and very much in, in line with the treatment that our company would, would do. So um, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose hope in the company that came out to do that for you. Um, doing any additional treatments yourself is definitely going to be a challenge with carpenter ants. Their nests are located, as you probably well know already, inside the wall voids. Um, and sometimes nests can be can be stuck in in pockets of, of areas where there's there's beams sandwiched against each other in the wall void there's no way to get a treatment in there um so i would reach out to the company again doing a spot treatment in that one location is probably going to knock down the nest because carpenter ants can have multiple nests a parent nest and satellites it's possible that all the satellite nests were taken out but the parent nest wasn't um so i would go back and try and get one or two more treatments if if one or two more doesn't do the job you probably want to speak to that company and make sure they're comfortable opening up the wall i don't i I know you probably don't want to do that but that is what we normally do after you know one or two treatments haven't been successful we kind of need to know what the structure is inside the wall void okay nikki good luck with that let's go to lindy in vancouver hi Hi there. So uh, big brown spiders the size of the palm of my hand um, really seem to like uh, stain on people when they're on the patio, stain on their hair throughout the house. We've got dogs, so want to be careful of any of the treatments that we do. I'm reading a bit about peppermint oil, etc. But uh, always on my kids about don't don't be scared of these types of things, but uh, very dissettling. (laughs) Oh, my God. What kind of spider is that? Like what species? Do you know? Um, that's I, I a, don't. I don't know. You don't know, Mike. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. There are lots of different species of, of large spider. Um, without without seeing a, a, a picture of it, it's hard for me to comment on what spider it is. But I would say that um, 
yeah, I have heard some customers say that the peppermint oil is something that, that does help. If it's an outdoor area, you're obviously going to need to uh, reapply that on a regular basis. Um, if, it's, if it's raining for inside the house, um, if you do decide that you want to go to the extent to get a treatment done, uh, do understand that um, uh, dogs are more or less the same as humans when it comes to how they respond to insecticide treatments. Uh, so as long as you know what products are being applied, ask the company who's going to be coming in to, to send you an MSDS sheet and, and let you know of the, product that, the products that are being applied. Um, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Cats can be a lot more sensitive to uh, insecticide mm. treatments than dogs are. The other thing I would suggest is um, my wife is very adverse to spiders and um uh and i would always prefer not to do indoor treatments when it's possible i used to lay out um just glue boards purchased from a local hardware store and put them underneath couches and behind tables and, and cabinets and actually captured a lot of spiders in those glue wow. boards and kept the numbers down when i looked in the basement suite that had lots of them so okay you can try those okay lydia i hope you give that a try let's go to dan and ladner hey dan Hello. Yeah. yeah, I've got moles, and I can get rid of them when I get rid of them. You know, the brother or their sister or mother or father that come along, I can never seem to completely get rid of them. Moles? Moles. Moles. Okay, okay Mike, moles. So um, about 11 and a half years ago, when I started my company, I went out to a, a friend's farm in Langley to uh, to teach myself the art form of uh of mole elimination, and I discovered that it really is an art form. Um, so my recommendation for, for moles, we have a company that we refer all of our clients to, and this gentleman does moles exclusively, ARG Mole Removal. He actually does a program in my backyard at my house. He just came by a week and a half ago to set up our, our traps for our, our seasonal mole program. I would, uh, I would contact him or another mole specific professional if it's a general pest control company you're calling in for moles they may have some difficulty okay dan good luck with that you need a mole specialist man kendra in abbotsford hi hi there hi. um over the last few weeks i've noticed that there's been black worms coming into my basement and they're mm. usually dead when we find them but i'm just wondering how do i prevent this mike black worms Okay, without seeing a picture of them, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, assume that they might be millipedes, and um, it's probably got something to do with um, when insects are are just suddenly appearing inside of a house. Ones that would normally be in a garden, it's probably because of some kind of change to their environment outside that they don't like. Sometimes people add some new soil to to the gardens that are up against the foundation of of the house, or we might have a whole lot of dry weather or a whole lot of rain. They're, they're essentially looking for a more um, hospitable place to reside. And so they're probably seeking that inside the house, but there's not enough moisture for those types of insects inside the home. So they end up drying up and, and dying. We end up getting a lot of calls like yours for uh, millipedes, or not millipedes, wood bugs, also known as sow bugs. Uh, it's a similar thing. Best advice to you, vacuum them up, and use some silicone or other caulking around baseboards and door frames. Okay, keep phoning. got open phone lines right now. If you've got a pest control question, you want to talk to Mike Laundry, Westside Pest Control, here's your opportunity right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Mike, do you find that in people in, in their basements that – that's quite often a, a point of entry for, for pests, whether they're coming up through, I don't know, through like foundations or drains or anything like that or, or a doorway? Uh, basements are, are a common place. Um, uh, to be honest, a lot, a lot of the, insect, uh, the insects that we see entering, entering homes are in houses that are, that are slab on grate. So as opposed to a, a basement, it's actually a, a home where... Um, Ground the, level. The ground is exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's so much easier for them to enter. Okay, let's go to Rod on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Rod. Hey, how are you doing? Good, go ahead. Uh, good. 
thinking about the previous caller there about those large spiders. They're probably wolf spiders. I think they're harmless, but they do get pretty big. And until you whack them, and then they just shrivel up into nothing. But uh, my <laughs> question is uh, is about um, last year the uh, crows really did a number on our lawn, uh, going after the chase. So they've moved out east from Coquitlam, past Poco, now into Maple Ridge, and the crows are really going after the chafer beetle. Any suggestions? I mean, I've completely redone my whole lawn now, so I'm wow. hoping that it's a stay. <laughs> okay, Mike, crows. Interesting. Our office is in Coquitlam, just off of United Boulevard, and I saw a whole bunch of crows fly over top last night, and I thought, I don't remember seeing those uh, uh, in previous years, so that might... Uh, that might explain um, why I saw those uh, chafer beetle. Um, yeah, I always recommend to people as as annoying as it is to look at a really destroyed lawn. That is the best thing to do. Let let nature run its course before you before you go and spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money on trying to repair something that's still an issue. As long as those chafer beetles are there, whether it's crows, skunks, raccoons, something is going to keep going after them let it run its course, and then when it has, um, there's lots of products out there on the market to try and eliminate the chafer beetle. It is even more of an art form than getting rid of mold okay. to try and do it yourself. I would suggest using a high sand content uh, uh, soil to lay down your new grass seed or sods, and if you're still having issues with that, there are companies such as ours that can install a temporary electric fence around the, the area that's just been planted to condition um, if it, it is, as long as it's a, a critter and not a bird uh, to condition them mm. to not come back to that area again. Okay. Let's go to Richard in Nanaimo. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hi go I ahead. Put my question in and then hang up and listen to the answer. Uh, yeah. I've been uh, just in the, in uh, farm country pretty much. I have chickens. All my neighbors have chickens and we out there, we have rats galore. Like we're talking, hundreds of rats, the neighbors catch them, people poison them. I would like to find a solution to get rid of the rats completely without uh, damaging all the owls and wildlife around. Okay, Okay, Mike, we just got one minute left here. Go ahead. Sure. So, I mean, as long as there is as long as there is chickens in the in the backyard, it's always going to be a challenge. Uh, the property I was just referring to, where we had we, we have a mole issue now. When I moved there, the previous occupants had lots of chickens in the backyard, and there was more rat tunnels than I've ever seen under underground. So, um, keeping keeping the the chicken coops as enclosed as possible and the food away from the rats is going to be the number one thing to uh, to start to start doing. Okay. Um, and then in addition to that, trapping stations, uh, snap traps inside of a trapping station. It requires no rodenticide, but uh, you'll probably catch a lot of rats that way. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike.